The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. All right, we're looking at Mark chapter 10 and uh, looking at verses 32 to, to 52. And we're, we've, been, we've been in Mark since September and we're kind of reaching the, the climax of the book, which is leading up to Mark 10:45, which is the theme verse of the whole book. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. And we'll kind of look at the importance of that statement and what, what all is going around it. But let's give attention to Mark chapter 10, beginning of verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, They will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am to be baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. The great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. They called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Let's pray together. Lord, let us recover our sight to see who we are in your sight and to see who you are and not some image that we've made in our minds, but as you've revealed yourself in the scriptures. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd speak to us, and that we would hear, and that we would respond in faith and repentance. We ask in your name. Amen.
Last week, if you remember, we looked at this picture, kind of this, as you're going through the Gospel of Mark, you have this idea that Jesus is turning things right side up. And so the idea is like things are upside down, Jesus is coming and he's bringing in the kingdom and he's turning things right side up. And in doing that, we see that those that are on the inside are sometimes finding themselves on the outside. And those who are outsiders are now finding themselves on the inside. And the outsiders, the out crowd becomes the in crowd as Jesus is bringing in the kingdom. And it's not a kingdom that uh, goes to the people that we would necessarily think uh, the kingdom should go to or to the, the ones that the world sees are respectable or, or have money or, or prestige or possessions. I mean, what you have in this story right here is the last miracle before the resurrection. This is it. This is the crescendo, and it's leading up to Bartimaeus and his blindness. And what do we have the church doing? What do we have the people of God doing? They're yelling at him, telling him to shut up. (laughs) They're telling him, hey, be quiet, be quiet. And he cried out, we're told in verse 48, many rebuked him telling him to be silent. Good job, church. (laughs) But what does he do? He cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. And so, you know, probably some of the disciples might have been joining in this chorus. Be quiet. We've seen this guy on the side of the road for a long time. But Jesus is intent on bringing the out crowd, the outsider, as an insider. Now, if you think about uh, a good movie or a good book, um, you have this idea, and you can, well, Chrissy's not here, I could give some shout outs to her, but the idea is that, you know, you'll have often a foil. You'll have one character that is uh, in contrast to another character, and it will actually make the, the evil person look worse or the good guy look better. And what you have in, in Mark's mastery of writing this gospel to us is we've noticed we keep getting these contrasts, right? We get these comparison and contrasts. We get two stories here. What do the two stories have in common? How about the title of the message? (laughs) What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked the very same question to both groups. We got James and John. They're insiders. They're on the in crowd. They've, They've got it. They've got Jesus and they've got a request for Jesus, and he says, what do, you, what do you want me to do for you? Well, it's the same exact question that he asked to Bartimaeus. What do you want me to do for you? That's what they have in common, but their contrast is quite remarkable, is it not? And so you have, you know, you have uh, the sons of Zebedee. They come up, and, and we're told in another account, it's their mother has put, the, put them up to this. And uh, they say to Jesus in 35, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And what's so shocking about that is a lot of things, but the context. The context is Jesus has just told them for the third time. And if you go back and you read these, and we looked at these before, Mark 8, 31 to 33, and Mark 9, 30 to 35, and now 10, 32 to 35, Three times Jesus tells them he's going to suffer, he's going to be mocked, and this is the most thorough explanation. But each time that he begins to tell them what's going to happen to them, the responses 
are pretty bad. So just if you look back, at, let's look, look, just be reminded. Look back at Mark 8, 31 to 33. Jesus tells him for the first time that he's going to suffer um, and, and be rejected. He'll suffer many things, rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, and be killed. And after three days, he's going to rise again. And he said this plainly. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. <laughs> and so Jesus has to rebuke Peter. So first time he tells him, they don't understand any suffering of Jesus. And Jesus not only tells him, am I going to suffer, but you're going to have to suffer too if you're going to be a follower of me. So then chapter 9, 30 to 35, he tells him the second time. Son of man's going to be delivered into the hands of men. They're going to kill him. And when he's killed, after three days, he'll rise. Verse 32, they didn't understand the saying. We're afraid to ask him. But then they decide they're going to have their own little conversation. And Jesus wants to know, what were you discussing on the way? They kept silent because they had argued with one another about who's going to be the greatest. They're, they've all got glory and vision of, of greatness on the brain. And Jesus is telling them he's going to go suffer and die. So then once again, right here, he tells them very detailed, Son of Man is going to be delivered. He's going up to Jerusalem. Son of Man is going to be delivered over to the chief priests, the scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flock him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. What would you call that? We call that something in our culture. We call it tone deaf. They're tone deaf. What does it mean to be tone deaf? The idea of tone deaf, I, I looked it up, by the way. Let me give you the, the, the official urban dictionary definition of tone deaf. Here it is. To be tone deaf is to be completely oblivious and or clueless regarding the existence of social cues, nuances, mores, norms, and etc. within a given social subset. Socially toned deaf people are blind, deaf, and dumb to the normative social standards and expectations of behavior around them and demonstrate this with regular incidences of egregious and embarrassing faux pas. The disciples here, James and John, are showing us an example of being socially tone deaf. Jesus has just told them the most unbelievably difficult news. And they want to know, hey, we want you to do whatever we, we ask of you. And it's okay, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, well, grant us to sit at your right, one at your right hand, one on your left, in your glory. Now, what's interesting about this, I mean, there's a, you know, this is obviously, you know, you have, you have this picture here of, of socially tone deaf and then one who's literally blind and the blind person is not asking for coronation he's asking for illumination you know is a little different he's just he's not pleading for something great doesn't want to be made much of just lord just i want my sight back this is plain and simple lord please help me recover my sight and jesus is pleased to do so and so, but interestingly, as Jesus is encountering James and John here, isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't just give an outright rebuke to, the, to this, you know, you want to be great? I mean, I think we're more like parents who would respond with a, a verse 41 response, right? Our parenting skills would just come out, and it says, and the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant. They got it, like, you guys, what is wrong with you? And they just, 
you know, McFly, what's wrong with you? But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus actually takes the time to teach them about what true greatness really is. Oh, so you want to be great. So then he begins to, of course, ask questions. You know, we've talked about so much of Mark as these questions going back and forth. They ask him a question, or he asks them a question, what do you want me to do for, for you? And they tell him what they want, and so he responds again with a question. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm to be baptized? And Jesus, of course, is referring to something much bigger of this, you know, the idea in the Hebrew Scriptures of the cup can be the cup of salvation like Psalm 116, but often the cup is the cup of wrath and that you will drain its dregs and this idea that Jesus is going to be baptized. He has this distress of knowing that the wrath of God is going to be coming down upon him as he stands in the gap to save us from our sin. And so he's saying, the cup that I drink, he says to them, you will drink. And the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. And I think what Jesus is saying to them clearly is that you're going to suffer. You can't escape that. I mean, each of these times he tells them about that he's going to the cross. Each one of these, he reminds the disciples, you too are going to suffer if you're going to follow me. And so he's telling them, you are going to be suffering. He's saying, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am to be baptized, you will be baptized. So he is letting them know, you are going to, to suffer. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand, it's not mine to grant. But it's for those to whom it's been prepared. He's saying, like, the Father's already determined who that's going to be. I can't grant that to you. But then Jesus takes the opportunity to teach them about greatness and he's reminding them, you know, you, you see these people that are the considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them and the great ones exercise over them, but it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be servant, and whoever must be first among you must be the slave of all. So now he's like, you know, you, in liter literature, you know, you get this idea of juxtaposition, and you have like the foil of these two, but now you have the, like the oxymoron, you know, like great is a servant. The one who's first is actually a slave of all. Like it's, it's counterintuitive of what you would think. And Jesus is showing us the upside down kingdom. You want to be great? Then go low. And you want to be first? Be a slave of all. And then you have this great statement. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And this is the word where we get the word deacon. And he didn't come for everybody to just meet his needs. Like we would think of this, you know, great kings, you think, oh, well, everybody's just going to serve them. Not so with Jesus. He's just the opposite of what a successful king would do. And he becomes a servant of all. And he gives his life as a ransom for many. We'll come back to that. So then you have the contrast. You have this Bartimaeus, this blind beggar, and, and he's not, you know... You have this contrast. You've got going to Jerusalem, walking with Jesus, and then you have Jericho, not near as impressive, and on the side of the road, and not even walking, but sitting. Like, this guy's got every strike against him. You're not from Jerusalem. You're not on your way to Jerusalem. You're not walking with Jesus. You're not in the in crowd. You're actually just sitting on the side of the road, discarded by society. And you notice 
He's the only miracle in, in Mark that's named. We get a name. Bartimaeus, son of honor, son of Timaeus. I kind of repeated twice for us, like different languages. I think maybe to, my guess is that th- these people were known. I think this is Mark's way of footnoting. Like, you know these people. They're in the church. You can go talk to them. They're still around. Bartimaeus, I mean, he's, go see him. I mean, this is, a, this is a, you know, we put historical footnotes. There's a footnote for us. It gives us his name. It's important. But Bartimaeus... What we see often in, in, in the Gospel of Mark is the people that come to Jesus, they're, they're bold. There's some really bold people, isn't there not in the Gospel of Mark? Like, they do bold things. We're just told, you know, just reading along, it says, and a leper came up to him. Is a leper allowed to just come up to Jesus? Like, he's just like, all right, I'm putting on, throwing all the chips down. I'm, I'm going for Jesus. I'm a leper. I'm not supposed to be near anybody, but I'm coming to Jesus. If you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus loves, he sees that persistence, right? We've got a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. She throws all her chips. Well, I'm just going to grab the hem of his garment. I'm going for it. I know I'm not to be touching anybody, not to be near anybody, but I've heard about this Jesus. I'm coming. Right? You've got, I mean, you can go on and on, like Jairus, and, you know, he's, he's going to come to Jesus, and then, and then, you know, they're telling him, don't even bother him anymore. Son's dead. Don't bother him. And Jesus has to tell him, no, no. All things are possible to him who believes. And then, you know, so Jesus, if you just keep going through, you'll see these different persistent people. The Syrophoenician woman, she doesn't, you know, she's persistent. You know, even even the dogs eat the crumbs at the table. Throw me some crumbs. Heal my, heal my daughter. And so we're seeing the same thing here. What we are seeing is that Jesus, if you come to Jesus persistently, you come to Jesus, Jesus will hear you. Like everybody else is like discarded Bartimaeus. He's done. Society's done with him. They just know like he's always there. You know, it's kind of like some of you, you, you know, like when you get to 355 and Shady Grove Road, like there they are. They're there. It's the same people there that they've been there for years. And there's different views on that. And I'm not going to get into that. But the idea is that they have been discarded by society. And so he's crying out. And you have this interesting theology that's going on in, in, in this passage, right? So the first passage, how is Jesus referred to? Well, he's referred to as the son of man, son of man, right? So the James and John are playing on the Son of Man idea. They, they got Daniel 7 on the brain. They know in Daniel 7, I mean, the Son of Man comes the great cloud and glory is presented to the Father and, and the kingdom's given. The kingdom's going to be over all the peoples and going to reign forever and that's going to be us. They got Daniel 7 on the brain. They get Jesus as Messiah. They have Daniel 7. But they don't have no Isaiah 53. They don't see the ransom for many Right? Which Isaiah 53 talks about the many. He's going to see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. He's, he's going to be a ransom for many. He's going, to, he's going to save many. He's going to justify many. That's what Isaiah 53 talks about. James and John don't have Isaiah 53. They got Daniel 7. 
But you see the Son of Man being referred to in the first passage. But Bartimaeus has something else going on. Because what does he keep calling Jesus? Son of David! Son of David! Like, he knows there's, there's, there's going to be a, a true and better David. There's going to be a greater David. There's going to be the Messiah that, that these passages have been talking about. There's going to be a Messiah. The Messiah is going to come. And he knows enough from what he's heard of people talking along the way. He hasn't seen Jesus, but he sees Jesus better than the rest of the disciples and the whole crowd that's with him. He sees with spiritual eyes. Son of David, have mercy on me. He's pleading, he's pleading. And so what happens? Crowd's trying to quiet him out, cries out all the more. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. They called the blind man saying, take heart, get up. He's calling you. Is he calling you this morning? Take heart. And notice what happens. Throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Just just something we just read right on over, right? I mean, what's the context? What's the context? I mean, we've got the disciples and just the same chapter have said, we've left everything and followed you. What's in it for us, Jesus? We've left everything and followed you. And at the end of the chapter, we're seeing someone who does literally leave everything because he's only got one possession. It's to keep him warm at night, maybe to hold the little coins I throw down to him, but he's got a cloak, that's it. But when Jesus calls him, forget the cloak, I'm running it, where's he at? Just get me to Jesus, he doesn't care about his cloak anymore, he's not going to need that. He gets healed, he doesn't doesn't ever say he's going back for his cloak, literally, He left everything and followed Jesus. The cloak is gone. He's got Jesus. He doesn't need the cloak anymore. Are we still clinging to some cloak? Thinking that's that's it. That's what we need. I mean, we're giving this example of here's one who's left everything and he's following. And the text ends with he recovered his sight and he followed him on the way. No cloak, just following Jesus now and has recovered his sight. There's something beautiful here, isn't there? How do you come to Jesus? Because the question is for us to think through. It's probably one of the most important questions we could ever answer. Jesus says to both of them, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want Jesus to do for you? Really? Like in your heart of hearts, what do you want him to do for you? And if we're, if we're beginning to grab this text and the Spirit's beginning to do a work, we're moving away from James and John idea. It's, you must increase, I must decrease. You must become greater, I must become less. It's not about making me, making Jesus is super, super special, so I want to be super special too. It's no, Jesus is super, super special, but not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name, give glory. You get the glory. Let me shrink so you can get all the glory. So if, if God's at work, you know you're not praying the first half. 
And the second half is what we begin to pray. Open my eyes because I don't know who I am. The first thing that John Calvin puts in his whole institutes is you cannot know God until you know yourself. But then he turns around and says, you can't know yourself until you know God. And he creates this incredible tension between the two because it's very true. How are you going to know God unless you know yourself? Well, I need to discover myself. I need to understand my, myself. I need to go and, and find out who I am. How are you going to find out who you are? Until you get in the presence of God. And you see who you are. How are you going to know who God is? Unless you know yourself. Like, then you know yourself and then you're going to see how great God is and how he gets all the glory in your salvation. And so I would think the one thing that we should be praying more than anything else is, Lord, help me recover my sight. Help me to... That it would all be about you and not about me. We want to see the world as he sees it, not as we see it. Now, if you think about this story, and this didn't even hit me until this morning. I've been looking at this passage all week and read the commentaries. And you think about just God's love for his people. And you look at this idea that in the uh, Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, you've got in Exodus 6 and in Jeremiah 32 are these two great incredible ransom passages of the Bible where the people are in captivity. They're in bondage. In, in Exodus 6, they're in, they're in bondage to, to Egypt. And it's not like, you know, the people are incredibly faithful at this point. But God just makes this declaration of these incredible I will promises. Let me just read them to you. Because they're both just, they're a couple of the most amazing I will passages of the Bible. So in, in, in Exodus 6, God says to Moses, he says, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians sold as slaves, and I remember my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I'm the Lord. I will bring you out from under the bondage of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be myself. I will be your God, and you shall know I'm your Lord, your God, who's brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. Seven I will promises. Does it say what all they're going to do? I mean, it's all about what God's going to do. He's going to redeem his people. When he says he's given his life as a ransom for many, it's the same word as redeem. He's going to take them from captivity. So he's promising all the way back in Egypt, this is what he's going to do. And then when you get to Jeremiah 32, turn there for a second. If you look at Jeremiah 32, God does the same thing again, but even greater. And now they're in going to be in bondage and kept in captivity to the Babylonians. They're going to be given into the hands of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But verse 37, start counting the I wills. 
I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back into this place. I will make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people. I'll be their God. I'll give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. And I will make with them an everlasting covenant. And I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. Isn't Isn't that awesome? God actually rejoices in doing us good. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon these people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. And it ends with, I will restore their fortunes. There's 12 I will statements. Does it say anything about how faithful they've been? I mean, the people of God, if you're reading Jeremiah, it's like sin, sin, and more sin. And then God just comes out with this and makes all these incredible promises of I'm going to redeem. I'm going to ransom them. And now this is what Jesus is saying, is he's going to give his life as a ransom, a redeemer. So now look back at Isaiah 35. Because Isaiah 35 is this wonderful picture of what it's going to look like when they come back from this exile. And we're told in in Isaiah 35 that the ransomed of the Lord shall return. And they're going to come to Zion with singing. Where's Zion? They're going to come back to Jerusalem. And there's going to be this joy upon their heads, and they're going to obtain gladness and joy and sorrow, and sighing shall flee away. That's going to happen after the 70 years of captivity. But we know that when Jesus is born, it says these, these prophecies are given. It says they're waiting for the redemption of Israel. They're waiting for this redemption. This redemption that happens here and it happened in Egypt, it's not the fullness yet. They're still waiting for this new... Now they're, now they're you know, of course, they're in bondage now to the Romans, but God's got something else in mind. And where's Jesus going in this story? Where's all the roads going to? He sets his face resolutely to go to where? Because the ransomed of the Lord shall return. They're going to come to Jerusalem. They're going to come to Zion. And here they come. And what does he say is going to happen in Isaiah 35? Well, Isaiah 35, 5 says that when, this, when the Lord pours out his blessing and, and this golden age happens, the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And what does Jesus do? Is he the last, right before, what's the last thing he does before he comes into Jerusalem? Is Bartimaeus is on the side of the road. And he wants you to know the kingdom of God has come. And so what does he come to redeem us from? He's bringing in his kingdom. And so when Jesus comes to be as our redeemer, I think the idea is that we, we forget some of these Scriptures that we just know to be true, to be reminded of. Just listen for a moment of some of the things that Jesus promised to redeem us from. First Peter 1.18 Knowing that you are ransomed or redeemed from the futile ways or empty ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus comes to redeem his people from an empty way of life inherited from generations past. How's he going to do it? With his precious blood as a lamb without blemish or spot. 
For when the fullness of time had come, Galatians 4 said, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so they might receive adoption as sons. Christ redeems us from the law because without the law, there's no sin. But we're all, there is a law and we've all broken it. We are all lawbreakers. We've broken all of his laws. And Christ has come to redeem, to pay for our sin, to buy us back. You see, the idea is this. You can't have shalom without justice. It's a big theme in the Hebrew scriptures. But there's so much of what the, 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 when the Lord comes, he's going to bring justice. He's going to bring justice. going to bring justice. How's he going to do that? I mean, some people look at this passage and they say, why doesn't Jesus just say, let there be forgiveness? Like he said, let there be light. You know, why didn't he just say, let there be forgiveness? Because to bring shalom, there has to be justice. Otherwise, you'd have no justice. I mean, think about it. If you're, if you're a, a judge and, you know, you're, you're trying a case and this guy was drunk driving and he just killed this family member and they just lost their daughter and you say as the judge, well, I forgive you. How's that go for the whole justice system in America? What do you mean you, you, you as the judge say, I forgive you? There's a penalty that has to be paid. There's a price. You know, it's kind of like when our president says, you know, he just says, well, I... I, you're forgiven, you're student debt. Oh, really? But somebody's got to pay it. So who, where does it go? It goes back into the national debt, and the people that paid already for their college tuition, they get to pay again for everybody else. They get to share it. Does that sound just to you? You see, you still have to pay it. Somebody has to pay. There are infractions, and the soul that sins shall die. There's a wages of sin is death. There's a payment that has to be paid, and so Jesus has to redeem us from the law, but somebody has to pay for sin. And the reality is if Jesus could say, just let there be forgiveness, and he actually didn't come and die on a cross for us in time, space, and history, do you think it would make us more grateful and less grumbling? If he could just say, let there be forgiveness? Would it make you more loving and less hateful? More forgiving and less bitter? More loving, less lustful? Like, would it really change you from the inside out? I don't think so. But when we start to grasp what he's actually done, I mean, you think about, you know, this being Memorial Day weekend, let me just tell you a story and remind you of Christ. But Chuck Colson told this story, John Piper's told this story. There was a group of American prisoners during World War II, and they're doing hard labor in a prison camp. True story. They each had a shovel, and they dig all day, and they come in and they give an account of their tool in the evening. And one evening, 20 prisoners were lined up by the guard, and the shovels were counted, and the guard only counted 19 shovels. And he turned it on rage at the 20 prisoners, demanding to know who didn't bring their shovel back. Nobody responded. Guard took out his gun. He said, I'm going to shoot five men right here, if the guilty prisoner does not step forward. After a moment of tense silence, a 19-year-old soldier stepped forward with his head bowed down. The guard grabbed him, took him to the side, shot him in the head, and he turned and warned the others, let it be a lesson to you to be more careful than he was. When they left, they recounted the shovels and there were 20. The guard had miscounted and the boy stepped forward to give his life. Now, how do you think about that boy if you're one of the 19? 
And you come back from that war now, and you want to go tell the family that you just want to thank them that their son gave his life. But when you pull in the driveway, and as you're leaving, the sister happens to back in and just bumps your car and bumps in your bumper, how are you going to respond? I mean, your brother just laid down his life for me. I think I can handle a little bumper dent in my car. Or would you respond in rage? Would you be bitter? Would you be upset? Would you be holding a grudge? Or would you just be grateful to the family that that son laid down his life for you? Well, Jesus did something far more than that in being our ransom. He brings in the kingdom, but in doing so, as a good soldier, he has to lay down his life. And he lays down his life and becomes the ransom for many. And that's, that's what's meant to change us from the inside out. That's what these passages are getting at. He gave himself for us, Titus 2.14, to redeem us or to ransom us from all wickedness. That's what we're saved from, but we're saved to something. And to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. He created a people eager to do what is good who've been saved from wicked deeds from before. Or do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. So when you think about Jesus as ransoming you and redeeming you, he ransomed you from something but for something. And the from something was our sin, its penalty, its lawbreakers, its consequences, its shame. But he rescues us to something that we're now his. We're no longer under the dominion of sin and no longer slaves to it. But now we're, we're under his dominion and we are indebted to him. And we're, we're called slaves now to righteousness. You see, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Well, how did he do that? The law says we're cursed. Galatians 3.10, we're all cursed. And the whole reason we can say there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus is why. We like that verse. It's because God did what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for, for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh on his own son in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be filled in us. So what do we say to these things? God is for us. Who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not now also graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So when he says he gave his life a ransom, redeemed us, he was condemned for us, cut off that you would be justified and brought in and welcomed. And now we're these exiles who, who return with singing everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The eyes of the blind shall be opened. The kingdom has come. Are you part of the kingdom? Have you entered into the kingdom? We're, we take now in part, but we're still waiting for the fullness. The fullness of the redemption is the redemption of our bodies and the redemption of all creation when he returns in glory. There's still a little bit more redemption that's still going to happen. But he's redeemed us now from sin. But he's redeeming this whole creation. And for us to be a part of it, it's just like this blind man. I want my sight. Just, Lord, you're, you're the king. Son of David, have mercy on me. Cry out to him. And he will save you. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, you are the Messiah. You're the son of man. You're the son of David. There's none like you. Worthy is your name. You are the one who's redeemed from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Redeemed out of them for your glory. Lord, we pray that you'd bring more people in and that you would be exalted. We ask in your name. Amen.